Uh, welcome everybody for the next in for two rather the next installment of the Beyond Autism uh, podcast series. We have a returning star today. Um, this is Amy Saracen. Ar- Gosh, get your name right. Amy Saracen, uh, BCBA, which is a, which is a change from last time we spoke, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So times have changed. I've uh, studied for the exam, and officially, I am a, a BCBA. So I've joined. I've joined that side. <laughs> Congratulations! Finally, the the kind of forced study. You can sort of read the things you want to read now, which is always a nice thing. Exactly. Um, so we are going to be talking about your recent case study around self-injurious behaviour. Um, so the name of your case study is reducing self-injurious behaviours behaviours in a school setting. Um, I'm just going to take colleagues through the uh, reference list for the, in the first instance, which will be available on the website when you, you click on the. Uh, podcast, or you'll probably see it on the title screen. To be fair, uh, you actually referenced some internal documents around the Beyond Autism uh, six-week assessment report, and also we'll talk about our, the independence framework, which you referenced as well. Yeah. Um, other than that, we've got Carbone, uh, Morganston et al. 2010, the role of reflex condition motivating operations at the CMOR during discrete trial and instruction of children with autism. Uh, which is from the Focus on Autism and Other Developmental Delays, 2010. You've got Iwata et al. in 94, looks like, towards the functionality of self-injury. This is Mrs. Jabba. Um, and then Iwata et al. again, summer 94, which is a function of self-injury behaviour and experimental epidemiological analysis. Also from Jabba. And then you reference what it looks like a book, I think, actually, the, the Kennedy uh, 2005 Single Case Designs for Educational Research. Um, so that's available, guys, if you're if you're interested in the reference list. So let's let's go. I mean, you start your case study with a really kind of concise executive summary. And I think that the line that I'd like us to start on, I think, is is actually the first one. So it's interesting to me that you're looking at uh, your, your first gambit, if you like, is talking about um, how behaviours that may challenge not only impact the individual who displays them, but also family and carers. So just, you know, give us some context, talk about the executive summary in that, in that regard, how you drew on the multidisciplinary team and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at behaviours at Challenge, of course, it doesn't only affect the individual themselves. I mean, impacts them in terms of impedes them on learning, the quality of life. Um, but not only that, if the behaviors that may challenge are the frequency is high, the duration is is long, that can impact the cares and uh, the family who are working with or, or with this in, uh, individuals on a day to day basis. So what I mean by that, if if this for this particular people who engages in self-injurious behavior, um, over a period of time, that may impact the care of the families that work with them in terms of, you know, in their well-being, their, 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 if there's no co- sort of conclusion or solutions to the self-injurious behavior. That's why I wanted to say it doesn't just, self-injurious behavior doesn't just impact the individual themselves. It impacts everyone in the, in, in that pupil's life or in that individual's life. And we'll reflect on it later, I think, but there was another piece in here that I that really um, struck a chord for me was when we were talking. So you start there and then you kind of reference the multidisciplinary team, because, of course, people will see from our work generally, actually. And in fact, your last case study, we, we also involved um, uh, our head of therapies, Tom Bailey, who's actually now head of 
therapy services of beyond autism and your title for that for those that haven't listened to it before was increasing independence for individuals with autism through the use of visual schedules which i think if you read that title you probably think quite quickly you probably would need multidisciplinary team and in this case speech language therapy in regards to your multidisciplinary team in this particular case was there a particular discipline you additionally drew on Absolutely. I mean, I'll always be talking about working as a multidisciplinary team, working together. I mean, that's how, you know, by working as a team, that's how we improve um, the individual's lives. Sometimes we may not have solutions. And therefore, once again, I brought in the therapy team, more specifically, the occupational therapist with um, into this one. Uh, and it was finding this individual an alternative behavior or incompatible behavior, if you wish, uh, to reduce. It was biting his finger. So I spoke to the, um, the, the, o the OT and that's where we came up with what can we offer him instead in the meantime. And that was a chewy. Okay, great. Um, so again, we'll come back to the details on that, especially around the, the differential reinforcement. Um, but I also was really uh, interested to hear about how you kind of took on the the point about also enriching the people's environment so working on the total communication system so not I, I think there's a tendency when you read articles particularly research pieces around reduction of self-interest behavior which I think immediately starts to sound like behavior modification mm -hmm. and maybe a lack of functional assessment which then again we'll kind of look look into that particularly around how uh, Iwata's piece came it, it tells you about the, the functions yeah. the functions but not necessarily about the, the functional relationship maybe um but uh that also you need to have a look at what what else a, a somebody can do because mm -hmm. i think it's fair to say that if you only focus on the reduction of something uh, uh the uh, behavior that's selected by the environment that, but, but what else are you doing are you looking for non-behavior in the end or are you looking for uh increased repertoires Exactly. So what we were looking at, it's not just in terms of reducing the self-injurious behavior, but it was enriching that environment. And how did we do that? Well, we looked at what skills he had, what skills he didn't have, what barriers he had. And we, the most important thing was just giving this individual a means of communication. So we first started with a Makaton sign language and it being adapted. We realized early on that uh, the imitation skills were weak and he wasn't catching on to that. So then we again, we, we I collaborated with the multidisciplinary team with the SALT and we came up with let's take a total communication approach. So we use objects of reference and we also went into using PECs. So it was um, still early stages of it, but we wanted to teach him the communication by asking or by getting his most basic wants and needs fulfilled. We noticed that um, that helped uh, this individual. Not only that, but learning to occupy his own time, engage in act meaningful activities. Um, so we started teaching him pl basic play skills. Uh, whether it be playing with a little pop-up pirate, whether it be stacking blocks, playing connect, putting connect for. Um, uh, it, the it, it playing with the Connect Four, uh, and then that's where we definitely saw you know tying in all those um, um, skills in there, and that's how we saw um, the, the significant reduction. Okay, great. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you kind of uh, obviously I've, I've seen your classroom. I see how I see how you work, so I can really visualize this. But I think it's probably worth thinking now about how you've taken 
uh, as we know, like the, the, the principles derived from some of the experimental aspects of ABA into the uh, uh, practice under, underpinned by behavior analysis, how you, how you took it into the classroom. And I think what it would be great now if you kind of take us through, you know, your baseline through to ABC, through to, you know, design of the intervention and, and the additional teaching. And I think that would be good to paint the picture of that. Yeah, so when a pupil arrives to our school, we do a six week baseline uh, assessment and we come and we come up with a report on skills we want to teach them. So um, one of the um, assessments that we use at, here at Beyond Autism is the independence framework. So I looked at the barriers he had and, um, and from there we then um, looked at, you know, skills he need to be taught. But um, you'll see that I reference IWADA. IWADA is really great at looking uh, looking at functional analysis. Although this wasn't implemented this time, we did look at the ABCs, the antecedent uh, behavior and consequence, and we're just looking at the functions of this behavior. Now we notice that the behavior occurred under interrupts, uh, whether it be interrupted with a toy he was playing with or loud noises, demands being placed away, um, and um, when he wasn't able to access uh, a tangible immediately. So by that, we then started working on sort of those antecedent manipulations. So no, you can't have this, but you can have this other toy instead or the interrupts when, you know, if there was loud noises, we were teaching him to say, um, you know, giving him the option, okay, let's go. Um, and giving him those opportunities. And that's where we really were focusing on in those antecedent manipulations and differential reinforcement. So when he used the chewy opposed to biting his finger, we were definitely reinforcing that uh, instead. Okay, great. So you referenced the independence framework there, which is um, a, a kind of an in-house thing that we've developed for, from a couple of other assessments from, you know, taking inspiration from some core aspects of the Essential for Living, from the VB map, uh, but also some reference to kind of more broad national curriculum frameworks mm -hmm. within the context of this young young man. Mm -hmm. I guess it's important for the listener to understand that he was sort of a non-vocal verbal communicator, yes. uh, and that also his barriers presented in such a way that was he clearly had some you know uh, a limited repertoire in terms of the basic learning to learn skills like like imitation and so on. Exactly. And as I kind of go through your case study and I see you reference ABC data. Yes. Obviously, the purpose of that is to kind of begin to to uh, try to formulate the beginnings of a hypothesized function for the finger biting. Did, did the ABC data really give you any insight into that? Essentially, it came out of various, um, uh, various antecedents. Uh, the function of it still is quite unclear it just it was generally when he became upset it was that was that was the immediacy of it he was getting some sort of um automatic reinforcement from right going right into biting his finger uh which is why the chewy was presented for him but yes i um did forget to mention the sort of profile of this young uh, young man. He is uh, yeah nine years old he came to us um last in September 2020 and um, he did come with a very early, um, um, not he didn't have many skills and very high barrier. So that's something we wanted to uh, focus on is giving him those functional skills, giving him that means of communication and reducing those barriers. Right. And it's, it was fascinating to me. Well, I guess it, it just it constantly piques my interest when I hear it, our colleagues talk about these types of things, because obviously we're, we're striving to find the functional relationship between 
what you know the environment if you like the whole environment and that, that behavior being selected and you mentioned something about immediacy and you've talked about limited repertoires meaning you don't have a clear and seen behavior consequence relationship because you don't even really know what the mo is like you've got so many different things going on but i think what's interesting then is that even despite that what you're what you can start to formulate is how how are you going to deal with it because just because you can't immediately see the function and i suppose in a way when you reference iwata i mean it's he's been talking about this for a long time right and and when you reference a 94 paper when he's looking at 152 single subjects analyses of functions of self-interest behavior even that scientific kind of experimental study i guess found real variation i mean there's the, the range of understanding in terms of how SIB is maintained, it, it's all of them, isn't it? So you've got social yeah. negative reinforcement or escape, 26.3%, I think you mentioned here, for attention or gaining access to tangible. I mean, really, it's like it's a lot of stuff all of the time. Um, exactly. Where I think people, one, practitioners struggle is it could have been escape to begin with. Uh, but now you've possibly your, your presence has presented a demand which is either maintain the escape function or there's something around I don't know uh, a man for attention now because you're close and, and and if there isn't much of a repertoire for that individual then maybe finger biting serves all those purposes exactly and we talked about our presence um, and uh, that's where there was a reference with carbone the CMOR and if uh, for those who want to break down of what that actually stands for it's the reflexive conditioning, motivation, op motivating operation. So that is, you know, the warning stimulus that, you know, the condition is just about to get worse. So exactly. Maybe, you know, once he came to us and we were starting to teach him these skills and start placing these demands on him, that's where our presence, just us, you know, was an SE or that CMOR. Okay, things are going to get worse. And, and that's where we saw some may have seen some finger biting as well. Um, but again, I, as I said, it was not immediate access to certain tangibles, but because he didn't have that language, expressive language to say, hey, I just I just wanted uh, a little bit more of my snack or I want that toy. Um, we could see him um, become distressed and that's where um, he would then bite his finger. So it was, it was um, um, a tricky one to sort of look at as a whole, what was maintaining it, um, what was the actual function of it. So we had to um, therefore put in, um, you know, as I mentioned, we increased skills, communication, and we provided this alternative um, or incompatible um, behavior. It's really interesting how you talk about the, the, that whole dynamic and how you kind of have to get to this space where some some action has to be taken because you could forever be assessing, couldn't you? Like we can't yet identify the function, but all the all the while, going back to your original point, you've still got somebody that's hurting themselves, and you've still got that the impact for them and the impact for their family and their carers, and the barrier that presents for their learning in any case. So you have to do something, and I also find it. Um, I find it really interesting when people start talking about demand and, and how I was just talking about this with colleagues today, funny enough, in a different setting about if you, this whole obsession with trying to get people to ask for things in the best possible way that they can when they're in pre-crisis or crisis. It just it just blows my mind because you're immediately increasing demand for something that that the individual finds hard anyway. So by definition, you're changing the MI. So for me, you just end up in this space where where that person wanted something in the first instance, 
then all of a sudden you go, no, hang on, that's not good enough. I want you to ask it like this differently. And you don't, you know, in terms of the, the, the environmental changes and the behaviours that now selected and then what is being evoked or the value change and certainly the behaviour change, for somebody with a limited repertoire, you, you just really don't know what you're teaching. And you, I, I think at best get static progress. At worst, you increase in this instance the, the, the cases of SIB. But in any case, it's just something sort of an abolishing operations, isn't it? When we start, when they just simply wanted something, then we increased it. So for a better response, definitely. And um, I just wanted to uh, make a point that um, when we're talking about functions and we've had to, you know, they say only add one variable at a time, but with, with, because we're in a school setting, and unfortunately, I would love to be in a clinical setting where it's, you know, we're going doing everything by the books in terms of functional analysis, and you know, you're only adding one variable and seeing that affects the the intervention. Um, because of the setting that we're in, we have to be mindful, and sometimes it is hard to define which one is the function um, because there's so many environmental factors in a school and that's what we have to take into consideration at times so um for that reason we had to divert a little bit with the only adding one variable we had we had to look at his communication we really needed to increase his independence or his um, functional skills and because it's um self-interest behavior we did have to implement something right away or else ethically you know we wouldn't be doing our job would we no absolutely a lot of your practice obviously is, is inspired by research um uh, obviously from kind of the ABA part of our sort of continuum of behaviour analysis, if you like. So you, you talked about being kind of inspired by the, the IWATA work and, and wanting to be able to apply that more stringently, maybe. I think you mentioned wanting to to possibly even do sort of more clinical work. To tell us about what, what interests you about that, how you wove your um, interest, inspiration from the functional assessment or functional analysis into your work here with this with this case. Yeah, um, definitely. You'll see that my reference is Iwata, and um, you know I did actually have the chance at Beyond Autism one time for my dissertation to complete a functional behavior assessment. Now, you know what Iwata says is that behaviors that challenge are generally maintained by fairly straightforward contingencies, which is why I did want to sort of maybe try um, completing a functional behavior assessment. You know, we, you know, there's those four conditions that we see. The play, the alone, the contingent escape, the contingent attention, but it it is quite time consuming, isn't it, to complete a functional behavior assessment? It's not you can just up and run it. You need training in it, and um, and I think that's why in school settings it is tricky to uh, complete them, um, and also because because of the resources in the environment, you may never get a true representation. For example, the alone condition. In a school setting, you'll never completely see a room that has nothing in it where you'll see the alone condition on its own. So we, we went more topography-based opposed to function-based intervention. You know, this is what would be really um, interesting to implement. His functions, when we look at them, they appear to be under escape and attention mainly, but every once in a while, we'll see the function of it sort of change. So again, this is why ideally we would like a function-based um, uh, intervention, but with him, that's why we had to use a variety of tools and the intervention had to include um, many variables. Um, and just a little bit to go into it. Why is it also difficult to implement a functional behavior assessment in schools is that 
essentially it does require a lot of staff training and even for myself even though I'm a newly BCBA I would still need training it being overseen by another BCBA or a consultant at the school um, it requires again those resources that uh, we need and perhaps again we have to look at treatment fidelity is the functional behavior assessment in itself being run accordingly and uh, in, in ensuring that um, it is properly being being run in every single condition. So I suppose then you're left. I mean, we've talked we've talked at length about this uh, in regards to your kind of when you went for the form over function for lots of reasons, the communicative issues, uh, the limited repertoires for this learner. Given if you, I mean, this is a bit of a rhetorical question because it doesn't really necessarily relate to what you did, but certainly I think it. it it may have occurred to you and if not we can talk about it now what did you feel like there was something missing or did you feel like there was um more time than necessary spent before you kind of got to kind of the the, the nuts and bolts of the, of, of the possibly the reasons or, or the mo's or the function of the behavior over time did you see it change i mean what what do you think a formal functional assessment or analysis would have told you that experience of working with this young man over time didn't? Well, right now we're taking, uh, you know, we are taking the direct form of data. We, you know, it is, um, you know, we're using the, the classical A, B, C um, sort of data collection, but it would be more interesting if it was a bit more narrative, if we, the functional behavior analysis, um, essentially it would give us a bit more, I think it would just give us a bit more information. And I, in hindsight, I would like to just go back and, and or even, you know, go forward and do a look at where, where, because based on the ABC, it does look like escape and attention. Or when you do some direct um, observations, that's what it seems to be. And then there's some other functions as well. But I think, I think the functional behavior assessment would just kind of confirm exactly uh, under which conditions it's happening and we could formally create uh, an assessment, uh, an intervention for him. And do you think then that that would speed the process towards um, the, mo the most appropriate support? Uh, one of the things that I find really difficult in in practice that's sort of underpinned by behavior analysis, if you like, as opposed to one of more more formal settings, it, and I know we talked about this over time, was when you're reinforcing. Particular, let's just say, for example, you're looking at you, a very basic skill, and and it's just an illustrative example, but just say kind of matching to sample, and we're thinking about how we reinforce. And we're thinking about the things that the learner finds reinforcing. There's so many things that we have to consider because I, I, you know, obviously I want to prove this idea within his research, and it's been replicated loads of times that the functions of behaviour broadly fall under the four functions. It's kind of it, it's one of the cornerstones of what we do. I think over uh, over the course of your own practice, conversations, conferences, and so on, we we all I think also agree that things are probably under multiple control. So, you know, what starts one way possibly the next thing that happens, you know, you're getting into this a whole other realm of, of change together, four-term contingencies, if I'm just making those phrases up, but yeah. do you know what I mean? Like that, all the things that kind right. of constitute a day or a period of time. Do you, I, I mean, do you know, opposite to you, I don't really have a massive desire to, to work in a really formal setting. 
And the reason is, I think I find it a bit strange because you'd have, let's take the alone condition, for example. And I know, I understand the process, but I, th- I find it super weird to be kind of observing somebody just alone doing nothing and, and taking data from that in order to figure out stuff. And I, and I just wonder whether it must, from an ethical point of view, have to balance against the nature of what you're targeting or what you're thinking about or trying to change for somebody or help them through. Because you wouldn't want to do it all of the times. Some of the time, the things that you know, like you just, you kind of feel or see or data tells you, your baseline logic tells you that there's a certain set of criteria that enable you to move on. You don't have to continually do this functional assessment. Um, So I guess my question to you is, with this particular case, so separating out now what you find super appealing about um, working through those kind of formal clinical settings, in the case of this young man and the self-interest behaviour, and given that you could adjust things for him through differential reinforcement, hypothetically, would you think it's worth the effort and the time to go through this formal assessment for this behaviour? Or are we sort of saying to colleagues, but sometimes it would be super useful because it's so complex what's going on. And in other times, is it, do you know what? ABC is enough because it helps you to form a hypothesis and so on. Yeah, to answer answer that question, I think for for this particular individual, I would love to dig a di- dig a deep a little bit deeper, sorry, with him, just because. I want, we, yes, we, we've reduced it from 98 to 20, but now we're at a um, sort of, it's just stable. It's stable around the 20 mark. So when we talk about, you know, social significance, clinical, you know, significance, um, I think even because it is, again, we want to go back and think about this is self-interest behavior. It would be, I think, beneficial for this individual to just look at it a bit more, find out what is maintaining it essentially so we can reduce it even further because 20 um, finger bites a day still leaves a callus, uh, so a long-term mark. So for that reason, I think because of the complexity and we're seeing under uh, different conditions, I think definitely looking at it a bit more and trying to really find out the what's causing it or maintaining it would uh, would be really helpful. Yeah, it just occurred to me actually that there's so, so many of the articles that are published will celebrate a reduction as you've, desc- as you've described it. And it's up to the practitioner then to take inference from that, isn't it? So, okay, so if I do that, then I'm going to hopefully see a, see a difference. And then, and then because, you know, I, I in the past worked with quite uh, significant um, behaviours that challenge and you can reduce it. But I've never, I'm not sure I've ever seen like a total elimination of the, of the mm-hmm. form given certain circumstances, which, which I guess we, it poses ourselves uh, issues as, as practitioners of behaviour analysts as well. Okay, great. A little bit of a segue there, but I think it was totally worth it just to give extra, extra, extra context um, in terms of being inspired by our field. So let's go on to more detail. So you go on within your method to talk about. Um, how you define the behaviour, which I think people can kind of read for themselves rather than you going through it necessarily. Um, it looked like you have kind of had a look at the idea of um, episodic biting as opposed to trying to identify every single bite within the context of, of the behaviour. Did I read that right? 
Yes. So it was, um, I just described it using the topography and not the function of it. Because um, as I said, it was uh, difficult to describe the function of, of the, the SIB. So I had to use more the, the topography at that point. Um, and yeah, so what was really great about when we put in all these interventions, and I'm probably just skipping ahead a little bit, but when he first came to us, when we were looking at the data, it was, you know, it was, we had as high as, uh, I think I mentioned 98, um, 98, and that was the highest we had seen, but it significantly reduced, and even to this day, so it might not be quoted, but it's on average maybe 20 or less, uh, which is, you know, really substantial in this, in this case, so. So we've got a bit of a teaser for the results, which is great, but we've got, yes. we've got a journey to get there. But, so can I just clarify for the listener at this point, when you say 98, mm -hmm. by your definition of the topography, is that 98 episodes as opposed to 98 bytes? 98 bytes. So within, so there might be one episode where there was more than one, but we counted each individual bite to the finger. Oh, okay. So is that, is that a granular? Okay, fine. How, how did you, how do you feel on reflection that, that, I mean, it's irrelevant, really, because you had your topographies and, and uh, people were observing them. But in terms of intra-observer agreement for how many bytes there were in an episode, like how confident are you in that range of 98 being the top end, given that it might be hard to identify? We mean, um, we operationally defined what the behavior looked like. Um, so it was making contact. So anytime he would put his finger to his mouth uh, and, you know, his teeth make contact to the index finger, we would have a clicker on the, the tutor would have the clicker on them and they would click it. So it was bite and any sort of release and then going back to the finger, then it was another click. So if there was a release made and then he'd bite his finger again, that was what we consider a second incident. Okay. So what I've taken so far then, right, is is this kind of almost like a, it's very easy to say this in in hindsight and when you observe, when we're talking about your actual case study, because obviously time passes, right, but yes. you're talking, it feels like there's like a theme here where you've, you've had to balance the difference between function, safety and skill building, like this, this kind of pot of these, these are the parameters under which I have to make decisions for this young man. Yes. Okay, cool. So... <clears throat> You um, you mentioned earlier antecedent manipulation. Take us through that section. Yeah. So I was mentioning that we, um, if we knew, so we knew that, you know, it was either demands, whether it be um, told no to accessing um, an item. So the types of antecedent manipulations we used was, no, you can't have this, but you can have, and something alternative was um, offered instead so that we found that that um, helped um, s some of the incidences um, if it was a demand we made sure that how many demands we were placing on him so instead of placing maybe five in a row we were placing two in a row uh, or it would vary because you know we want to talk about varying how many demands are placed uh, and then we would reinforce uh, reinforce that for him uh, and that's what we found was effective Okay, um, and uh, was that because you were, I guess, adjusting the setting event, I suppose, or getting... Yeah, of course, if we, 
Yeah, of course. If we could anticipate when they were most likely the self-interest behavior were to occur, we wanted to just manipulate it in that sense. So if we knew that um, when there was loud noises, as I said before, when there was loud noises, the option to leave that room was given to them as well. Um, so because the Makaton sign language wasn't necessarily, I said, uh, we couldn't get the sign um, in that point, we didn't have a, a, a break, uh, a sign, a uh, picture for break, um, because it wouldn't, he didn't have quite the understanding of that yet. We just said, okay, we can go. And we would just stand up and they would just stand up and they would, could leave the the classroom or the, the environment. Mm -hmm. Which again, I, I suppose brings into, I know we, offline, we, we've had conversations around the importance of developing appropriate escape plans. Why do we insist on people tolerating difficult situations all of the time? It feels like quite an attritional thing to be doing. So interesting you built that in, in terms of uh, anti-manipulation and kind of getting him to that sort of, uh, we're trying to avoid as much as you could the, the response of finger biting and self-injury. You had a look at DRA. Yes. And I think you mentioned earlier, and I kind of can see that as well in terms of the Chewy, the DRI. So, so yeah, it's about your, um, and I think, well, you've landed on this clearly because the functional relationship is really hard to find. And we've Absolutely. got a list of repertoire. So you had to do something. We've, we've established this in terms of our function versus safety versus skill building, right? So tell us about your DRA, tell us about your DRI. So when we were looking at originally the the finger biting, I thought, okay, we need to put something in. What and if he's getting some sort of sensory input from biting his finger, uh, we need to replace it with something that was just. Well, we all know when we're teaching teaching another behavior, an alternative behavior, it has to be. Um, it cannot be effortful. Why would they engage in a different behavior if it's effortful? So we we then said we'll have a chewy around. Um, around his neck and um so it's just as easily as accessible and um it's it's not effortful he just it's the same sort of motion anyways bringing the chewy up to his mouth as to the finger so uh, when uh, at first he was he was um he didn't use it at, at all so we would then offer it to him and reinforce yes that's it use your chewy that's it and it he's he didn't quite um didn't always necessarily do it independently but when reminded he he would uh, use the chewy instead uh, which is great because by biting his finger um you know up to 98 uh, times a day that did create a callus on his index finger so it did leave a permanent mark although it never broke the skin it has left a callus so um, that's why the chewy was uh, used instead we tried a variety of chewies as well because you know there's different sort of uh, some are harder than the others um and then we found one that he quite enjoyed or, or he would use uh he would prefer to use this type of work is so challenging because I, just in talking about it i'm thinking about all the other potential functions it could be serving right i mean it could be you mentioned sensory uh it could, i guess it could be taste you know there's so many things that it may be and it and as you're describing it i think I, i'm kind of visualizing it a bit more and I think also that, that this com this concept of reinforcement in this case is so interesting because when you talk about the DRI component with the, with the Chewy, mm -hmm. clearly you were socially positively reinforcing it as well. 
Yes. Now I start thinking to myself from a behavioural analytical point of view, and I appreciate your, your investigation of the individual will probably uh, discount this point, but just for people's thinking, I now start thinking, okay, well, yes, there, there's the chewy. So if it was a sensory function, that, that's kind of serving the purpose. So in terms of reinforcing the MO to bite the finger, that should have been taken care of there. But you also gave the social, social uh, positive reinforcement, which is the right thing to do, of course, because you have a relationship with this kid as, you, as, his, as his teacher, if you like. Yes. But if you were trying to then say the function of the behaviour is likely to be sensory or attention or it's sensory maintained by attention, you just you can't you can't really find that out, can you? Like with a learner that has such a, a, a small repertoire of communication or how they then communicate their their feelings and their, I guess, um, uh, to kind of deviate from behavioural language for a second, but their, their, um, their sense of regulation or how they're feeling. You don't really know, but your, your key your key measure, I guess, is, is the range you described, which has gone from 98 down to, is it, what did you say? Uh, the lowest, uh, the, the lower average of being just 20 times per day. So that, yes. that's, there's a huge reduction there. But it just goes to show you how <laughs> how complicated this can be if we're really trying to go down the functional assessment route all the time. Exactly. There's so many factors that ha happen throughout the day. I mean, what we can know that may, I mean, what we can hypothesize is maybe it's, you know, sensory, uh, it's a sensory sort of aspect that's maintaining it. And that's what we have to look at. And that's why we try to find maybe a chewy that was what resembled a most like uh, a texture of a finger, which if, if you may, if you may think of it that way, we just try to find something that was easy, that wasn't his finger, that um, while we're still investigating or looking into uh, reducing even further, I mean, ideally we want to reduce even further from 20 a day because it's still significantly, um, if you think about it, 20 finger bites a day is still going to always, it's going to keep, um, the calluses are going to stay there. So we're we're continuously in, uh, analyzing it, looking at the antecedents, looking at the functions. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing with uh, with this guy. So I suppose your, your reduction in a way, like obviously you've, you've improved, you've improved, it's an improving picture, which is really good news. Socially um, significant, if you think about it in the end, it has. Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, of course, I mean, I don't think you'd be doing it otherwise. Yeah. But no, yeah, for sure. Like, absolutely. Like, the impacts are um, significant from the individual through to the extended kind of stakeholders, if that's not too cold a word. But, you know, you talked families, carers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to a certain extent, um, the, the, I guess almost like the, the contingency maps that, that are involved with the teacher and the learner, because in the circumstance where if it was demand or an escape function, as you as you talked about, sometimes it looked like that. Absolutely. And people generally not wanting to evoke self-injurious behaviour, it might, I mean, it shouldn't, but it could affect how people, how willing people are to engage with that person. Yeah, either, expectations. Yeah, you right. know, either within the which I think we have to own as, as people that are, sub, are prone or subject to the laws of behaviour, if you like, but then also in the community. And, and how is he then viewed within his family as he gets older within care settings or further education settings or what have you? Okay, um, great. With the, uh, I have a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. Um, 
moving on to the kind of discussion and conclusion part, uh, and also I should sort of urge um, uh, viewers, viewers, <laughs> listeners to look at your data because it, 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 def it definitely demonstrates from a vision inspection point of view what you were saying. We'll kind of move on to the kind of discussion and conclusion section. But before we do that, yes. I'm on a tradition. What is your first key word? It will be chocolate cake. OK, great. For the, for the uninitiated, <laughs> we have these key words to ensure that you guys have listened to the content for the podcast. So as and when you claim your CEUs, um, please do enter in what will end up being the first and ultimately the second keyword. So the first keyword is chocolate cake. So thanks for that, Amy. Discussion conclusion. We've, we've covered loads here. And I think one of the things that's really important for me to make sure is, the, is a clear message is that when you're considering function versus safety versus skill building, that it's super important that you uh, are taking a dynamic view of those things. Um, and actually, uh, before actually, I should say, before we go on to the discussion and conclusion, the skill building part, we, I don't think we actually covered that yet. So can, can you kind of give us an insight into the types of things based on the repertoire that this young man had that you were able to increase for him in terms of skills? Yeah, I think we just sort of touched base on it earlier um, when I said we're teaching him functional skills. So with this individual, due to the age and the high barriers that we what was assessed during his six week uh, baseline assessment was that first things most, he didn't have um, much communication. So we worked on the communication. We worked on the functional skills. So it was less intensive table work for him it was just about okay how can he be more independent so we looked at one we looked at he wasn't toilet trained okay so let's go into some toilet training on a schedule let's look at can he brush his teeth no let, or can he tolerate brushing his teeth okay so we started doing um teaching him those daily living skills this is what was really important for him at this stage um, in terms of eating. Can he eat um, by himself? What does that look like? We then revised that and was teaching um, some basic eating, some dressing himself. So this is, these are the type of um, skills we were teaching. Play, being near other individuals without engaging in um, inappropriate behavior. So we were just building up on those skills. What will help him in the future? And that's definitely what we were and that's what his um, his program looks like. Yeah, really to see that data as well, like how how the cumulative acquisition looks for him, like in terms of those daily living skills. And, and mm -hmm. I suppose, again, we're talking about this scientific quandary that we have in that we can recognise as, I guess, trained scientists that what you're doing isn't particularly scientific. It, it's practice based on behavior analysis. Obviously, we're taking it from Oh, clearly your, your, your paper, your, your case study is kind of inspired by lots of the kind of more formal work that's going on by colleagues whose, whose environment have afforded them that. But this whole gambit now of you saw the function was hard to find, you, you understood that safety was super important, um, you, you needed to build some skills and, and all the while the target behaviour is reducing, right? We were seeing a reduction in the self interest behaviour. But what is it? And it, this, this will probably be the forever question. Like, what yeah. is in here that that actually did this? And, and even does it matter? But like, is it the is it the parametric analysis? Is it is it the is it the combination of the parametric analysis and the component analysis mm -hmm. of the program and the reinforcing schedule? Or exactly. is it one thing? 
I don't know how you want. Can, can you answer that? Or, or <laughs> I wish I wish I had the answers. I'm just I'm I'm just uh, thinking about it just as much as you. Um, yeah, in terms of comparison, um, comparison analysis, um, it'd be hard because I couldn't say I would take you know, let's just take this little part of the intervention because that's that's one's important. Let's say you can't say, oh, it was communication. It was teaching him functional skills or was it teaching him, uh, you know, an alternative behavior. I, I cannot pick just one because, as I said, we just added all these variables in at once. And um, due, due to it being self-injurious, you know, we sort of had to start with the intervention right away. And then we couldn't really couldn't go back to baseline, you know, at all. We just had to keep we had to keep going. So right, it'll and, be a mystery. Yeah, and and I don't think you would. I mean, I, I I find that very difficult to justify. I mean, I know we've had this discussion before as well. Like, not that you were saying that we should or I was saying that we should, but genuinely, like the literature would point to the fact. Well, if you want to know scientifically what has made the difference, then you would be looking at you know different types of single case designs to prove that point but there comes a point where it's, it's a one-way street like you can't the challenge will come I suppose in the future if you're trying to if something starts going wrong within that package of intervention if you like or the package of support or the, the program of teaching and learning or what have you, you the, at some point you might have to to figure it out but I think you put get looped back to the, the this issue around function safety and, and skill building don't you in the end absolutely all right, cool. I think we've sort of covered some of the discussion and conclusion parts to that. But is there anything else you want to add? Like you, you, you mentioned a number of things. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of um, mention that it was really important in this case to work as a multidisciplinary team. And I probably will always uh, emphasize on that, you know, as as behavior uh, analysts, you know, it's it's we don't always have all the answers. And that's why we we work together, work collabor collaboratively. And we always, I always feel really great about that. It happened in my last uh, podcast about uh, using visual timetables. is no different from this time as well. Um, it 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 was this case. We had multiple variables, which was unable to be able to identify which one worked the most. But most, but most importantly, in the end, you know, this individual is leading a better quality life because all these skill sets that we're teaching him and um and not just for him but the impact on the carers and the families it's hard to see someone when they engage in self-interest behavior and by reducing it it just it just impacts them you know that little bit less or it impacts them in a different way you know in, able to engage in the community more and be able to engage in learning more often um before this uh, people came to us they uh, weren't uh, really engaging in group activities or group sessions, now attending pre-groups, which is phenomenal. The SIB is uh, is not impeding um, as much on the learning, um, and which is phenomenal. And if you do have a little chance to look at that graph, um, you'll see a great trend line. It's descending and it is, you know, that's what every behavior analyst wants to see in the end. SIB go down. And it would have been really interesting, actually, if we would have compared it with skills that were taught. Because you'll see one graph descending and one graph ascending. It'd be, it'd be going up and up. And I think that's where we feel really, as behavior analysts, reinforced ourselves is seeing one, you know, um, 
behaviors that may challenge or behaviors that may perceive to be challenging go down and uh, skills uh, go up. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and then who knows? I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody sort of rests on the laurels to like, your initial uh, attempts to ascertain the function were exhaustive to the extent that you couldn't you, you couldn't keep going because you had to make a difference somewhere. You had to act somehow. You had to put something in place. And we all know that as you've identified like it, you can't really even if it's just the modification of when he is more likely to do it as opposed to we know why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at antecedent manipulation and thinking, well, actually, if I can change the environment so the behavior is selected less, that we start to get more, more insight. Meanwhile, you're not just sitting back and going, oh, do you know, my hands are tied because, you know, the books tell me I have to I have to find a functional relationship before I do anything else. It was like, yeah, yeah. you do, but you also can't just watch that stuff happen. Um, exactly. And further to that, I think what this type of practice will afford people and him is a, a revisit of that as his skills increase and his repertoire is larger. You all of a sudden are in this space with, oh, hang on, no, no I am actually genuinely seeing a relationship now between um, when a person walks past and biting his fingernails. Now, is that is that escape or is that is that actually a manifestation of, of you know, I want some social contact now, like this is a man uh, and it could be that would be interesting in itself finding out is finger biting uh, a, a, a different a man in a different way is it him yeah. saying i want to i want to go i want to get out of this yeah that, or I want that would be very interesting or, yeah right and, and and you know work in progress right like a first step again along a, a longish road for for understanding how that young man ticks all right great i mean listen thank you for your time it's really interesting to talk to you again um Thank you very much for inviting me. I always enjoy enjoy these chats. They're always very interesting. Always fun. <laughs> Should do it more often. Um, <laughs> just just to wrap us up, I think maybe if you can give us our last keyword. I think the last keyword will have to be blue. All right. Thank you very much. So second keyword is blue. Um, all right, Amy. As I said, thank you. Enjoy your evening. It's evening for us for us here. I don't know what time people are listening to, uh, listening at. Um, uh, but in any case, have a good one and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.